Amen. I'm going to invite you, if you would, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them out, turn them on, and join me in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. If you are our guest this morning, again, I just want to say welcome, uh, whether you are here in person or online. Uh, if you're here, hopefully you, uh, if this is your first time, hopefully you received a Connect card on your way in. We would love to know how we can better connect with you in ministry, so I invite you to fill that out and leave it in your chair when you leave. Uh, if you didn't get one coming in, there should be some in the chairs around you, the chair backs, and you can take one of those. If you're online joining us, I'd love for you to send an email to us, let us know that you have joined us, and how it is that we can better minister to you. But we have been in a sermon series for quite some time where we have been working our way ever so slowly but uh, meticulously through the gospel of Mark. And we have been challenged by the life of Jesus Christ as Mark presents it to us. And we have titled this series, or I've titled this series, Astonished and Amazed. Because that phrase, those two words, appear repeatedly throughout the gospel of Mark as Jesus interacts with the people. They are consistently astonished by Jesus, what Jesus does. They are amazed by what Jesus teaches and what Jesus says. And, I, and Mark wants to, to evoke that same response from us as we are introduced to Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and we uh, pick up this morning where he enters in. But as we're preparing there, as I was thinking through uh, this passage of Scripture and thinking through my life, there's a phrase that kept coming to my mind as I was studying this. And the phrase is, and maybe you're familiar with it, if something is too good to be true, it probably is. And I have come to experience that and know that in a personal way over the last couple of weeks. Some uh, that are in my life know that I'm in the market for a new car. Uh, not a new, new car, but a new-to-me car, because mine is giving me fits. And it typically gives me fits when it comes to the summer months, when it's really hot, and it'll randomly shut off on me when I pull up to a, spot, a stoplight or a stop sign, and that's just not particularly safe. Sarah hates riding in my car. She doesn't feel safe driving my car. So I've been looking for uh, a car. And there have been several times when I have found what looked like a spectacular deal on a used car. And it, one was on Craigslist, and one was on a, a website of a, of a dealership down in Nashville, and I reached out to each individual to, to find out whether or not the car was available, and they would say, sure, it is. And then I would ask a couple of follow-up questions, and guess what happened? They ghosted me. The car looked phenomenal online, the pictures looked great, the price was just right, and I started asking some more difficult questions about what condition is the car in, and what is your pricing schedule, and, and how does this thing work out, and uh, can I get a test drive, and can I take it to my mechanic, can I do these things, and they, they, as soon as I start asking those little bit more difficult questions, they just pull back and they just vanish. And I can't get responses through phone calls. I can't get responses through emails. There's no question of, hey, we've got something else for you. It's just the car's gone. Don't worry about it. And those too-good-to-be-true moments turned out to be too-good-to-be-true. And the unfortunate reality is that is often the same that happens in our lives. We live with a show of faith and faithfulness. But when we do a really hard look at our lives, when we submit ourselves to accountability from another brother or sister in Jesus Christ, when we allow ourselves to, to be asked difficult questions, we find that the show that we often put on for others is nothing more than a mask or a mirage. Can't tell you how many times I have gotten somebody pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, I'm an evangelist here in town, and, and I would love to come and train your people in how to share their faith. 
And I'm super excited. That's great. I, I would love to know more about you, how we can partner. Tell me about your ministry. How many people have you seen come to faith in the last month? How many people have you seen to come faith in the last six months? How many people have, have you in your training, have, have you seen give their heart and life to Jesus Christ in the last 25 years? None. I know the theory, but there's no power in my ministry. No faith. I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is as a pastor to go sit and do funeral planning with somebody, and I ask them, did your loved one love the Lord? Absolutely. Did your loved one have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Tell me about it. And they can't. Did your, did your loved one have a favorite Bible verse so that I can at least quote that at the service? And it's crickets. Because their connection to Jesus Christ is based on some theoretical knowledge and not some personal relationship. And many, I believe, within the church are feasting on the faith and faithfulness of other people. And they're riding the coattails of pastors and Sunday school teachers and ministry leaders getting regurgitated Christianity. Because just like a mama bird chews things up and spits it on the plate for the baby bird to be able to digest, there are many infant Christians who have been sitting in the church for 35 years, and as Paul says, you're still drinking spiritual milk, and you're not ready for the meat of a real relationship with God. And we think that's okay. And we make excuses for it, but that is not okay. In fact, it is dangerous. And that is exactly what this passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning points out to us. Look with me in Mark chapter 11. And we're going to back up to the last verse that we read last week and read our way through to verse 25. After the procession into Jerusalem... Verse 11, Mark writes this, He entered Jerusalem, that's Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if, any, if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the, tree, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And ever, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired Mark to record this incident for us. 
so many centuries ago, knowing that we would be in this place on this day, reading this passage of Scripture, that we would be in this country on this time, reading this passage of Scripture. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we might see our deep need for you, that we might commit to grow in you, that we would not be content with fruitlessness, but that we would be committed instead to live lives of righteousness that bear fruit in keeping with holiness and in keeping with repentance and that are faithful to see the kingdom of God expand. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give us a hunger and a thirst to see your kingdom grow as people and individuals give their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ by the power of the gospel. Let us see life transformation. Let us see marriage transformation. Let us see our city transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us see our nation transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us see our world transformed as we put our faith and our trust in you. Seek your face and live in holy communion with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. This can seem like a pretty jumbled up group of events in the life of Jesus Christ. It can seem discombobulated. But the truth of the matter is, Mark has brought these two stories together intentionally. We've seen Mark use this pattern throughout his gospel to this point at several different moments where he intentionally interweaves stories with one another. Such that we see right here that there is this incident with the fig tree that is broken up by the experience of Jesus Christ in the temple. And so that, that, that ministry of Christ in the temple is, is bookended, if you will, or bracketed by this, this cursing of the fig tree and the lesson that Jesus draws from it. And when we look at them individually, it can be difficult to come to a meaning, but when we understand that Mark wants them to be linked together in this way so that you can't see the one without interrupting the other, you can't see the one without realizing that it is hugged by another story. He wants us to see that these two stories interpret one another. When we come to this passage of Scripture, there is a change in the tone of Mark's story of Jesus Christ. To this point, we have seen this building anticipation of what Jesus Christ is going to do. As he has revealed his identity to the disciples... The first half of Mark is dominated by the question, who is this man? Who is this man that has such power? Who is this man that does all of these things? Who possibly has the ability to tell storms to be quiet and go away, to calm seas, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, and who has the audacity to tell people, your sins are forgiven? That was the purpose of the temple. That was the place that people went where they were, would offer their sacrifices and it was at the temple by all of this religious ritual that their sins were cleansed. Who is this man who has the audacity to declare and, 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 and advocate that he has the power to forgive sins? And halfway through the book, that question is answered as, as Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King of Israel the one who had been prophesied through all of the Old Testament who would come and who would solve the sin problem, who would cast out the oppressors of the people of Israel and who would establish God's kingdom on earth. The problem is that the Israelites wanted that to look a specific way. They wanted a military king, a political power. 
They wanted someone who was going to rise up and, and create this economic powerhouse out of Israel so that all of the world would come under the dominion and the rule and the reign of Israel. And so Jesus reconditions their understanding of the ministry of the Messiah throughout the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And we've seen that he's confronted the self-centeredness and selfishness of the disciples. And so there's this, been this building anticipation now that we know who Jesus is and he's marching to Jerusalem, which is the, the seat of the throne of the king. And so there's all of this anticipation. And we saw last week that that just kind of fizzles out when he finally enters the temple and he looks around and he leaves. And we said last week that what we're seeing in that instant is Jesus isn't making an observation of this beautiful, wonderful temple like a tourist. Instead, he is the Lord of the temple who has come to assess its health, its vibrancy, its vitality, its virtue, its youthfulness. He has weighed it. He has measured it. He has found it wanting. And there's that pause in the events as Jesus looks around and he leaves. He spends another night in Bethany, and he comes back the next day. And this time when he comes into the temple, he does not come in celebration. He does not come in teaching, but instead he comes in judgment. This passage of Scripture is typically known as the cleansing of the temple. And when we think of this as a cleansing of the temple, what we think of cleaning something is that we're getting everything where it's supposed to be. We're straightening up. We're getting rid of stuff that doesn't really matter so that we can return something to its usefulness. That is not what Jesus is doing. Not at all. We see that because of what he does with the fig tree. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree is oftentimes, just like the vine, a symbol of the people of Israel. As God calls them his fig tree. And we see in the Old Testament that God is repeatedly disappointed with his fig tree that it does not bear fruit. And we see his judgment come. At the end of, of Malachi, Malachi promises that the Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he is going to come in judgment on the temple. And he tells them to beware of that day, to be ready for that day. So as Jesus comes, and he comes to the fig tree, and he speaks a curse over it, such that it withers and that it dies, we see in that act what he is doing in the temple. He is coming in judgment. Because what is supposed to be fruitful is putting on a whole lot of show and is producing nothing. It says he comes to the fig tree looking for figs, and all, even though it is in full bloom, in full leaf, which would, would have this, 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 this false show, this false display, this false advertisement that there's supposed to be something on there that would satisfy his need, he finds that there's nothing there. And so he responds to it, and for the first time, we see a miracle of Jesus Christ that is a destructive miracle as opposed to a constructive miracle. It's also, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the last miracle that Mark is going to talk about in his gospel. Up to this point, Jesus has been content to show grace and to show mercy and to build up, to set free the captives to heal the blind, to heal the lame, to, to speak life into people, to encourage their faith. And now all of a sudden, counter to all of that, Jesus speaks a word of destruction. And then he steps into the temple and he begins to drive out all of the misrepresentation and all of the, the things that are happening in the temple that are not meant to be there. But Jesus isn't, throw, isn't condemning the practice of what they're doing. 
We have to understand there was a place for it. As people traveled to Jerusalem, one of the things that the Old Testament required was that they pay the half-shekel tax. And so all of the money changers that are talking about in this passage of Scripture, that's what they were doing. People were bringing in their Roman coins and they were exchanging them for the temple shekel so that they could pay the tax to the temple. When they came to Jerusalem and the Passover and the other feasts, they needed to provide a sacrifice to the Lord. Very few people were rich enough to have their own animals that they could bring from. And very few people, if they did have a sacrifice that was pure, was undefiled, was, was worthy of sacrificing to the Lord, they didn't risk bringing it from far away unless something happened on the way and that animal were injured. So when they came to Israel, to Jerusalem, they would buy the sacrifices there. And historically, that market, that trade had happened outside of, of Jerusalem, still in the bounds. But up until recently in Jesus' day, they had brought that market into the temple itself. Turning the temple into basically a bazaar and a cattle market. A specific part of the temple. So Jesus is instead, as he's coming to them, he is angry that they have perverted the purpose of the temple, which we see in his quotation from Isaiah when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. How in the world is someone supposed to pray? And seek God in this place where people are buying and selling, where people are exchanging money, all of this racket. I mean, you've been to a grocery store. You've, I mean, and this is Passover. We're talking about, Josephus records that there might have been two and a half million people in Jerusalem at this time. They are searching. They are paying. It is a busy place. How is anybody supposed to pray? Not only that, but the temple of Israel sat on the eastern side of the city. And so there were a lot of people, these, these people that are running through, as it says that Jesus stopped them from bringing anything through the temple. They need a shortcut to the other side of the temple, so instead of going around, they're just cutting through the middle of it. They're cutting through the middle of the thing. How distracting is that? They are missing the purpose of the temple, which is supposed to be a place of prayer. And so Jesus condemns that, but he goes on to make a second quotation, a quotation from the, from the, um, the, the, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7:11 has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. God sees what they're doing. And there's a tendency to interpret this passage of Scripture that there are crooked dealings going on, and that's very possible. It's very possible that as people are coming to exchange their coins, they're not getting a fair exchange rate. And so these, these, these money changers are, are jacking up the price and charging an extra fee on top of it so that they can line their pockets. The same with the sacrifices. But when Jesus quotes Jeremiah here, what Jeremiah is talking about is he is condemning the people of Israel. Because the way that they're living their lives is that they're running out into the world and they are lying, cheating, stealing, committing acts of violence, committing adultery. They're doing all of these things out in the world and then they're coming back to the temple with the idea and the understanding that if I just do the right things, if I just sacrifice the right animals, if I just go through the right process, then I'm okay. And I can live that life out there and then I can come to the temple, and there I'm safe. Robbers don't steal in their den. That's the safe place. That's the place they go back to. 
after they've been out in the world stealing and robbing and committing acts of violence. What is going on here is the people of Israel are guilty of the same thing that the people in Jeremiah's day were guilty of. They're living lives of sin, unrepentant, utterly convinced that I can do whatever I want out there, and as long as I check off all the right boxes, I'm okay with God. But Jesus is not okay with that. And so his message and his actions are the actions of a prophet, come not to build up and cleanse and purify, but instead to be words of condemnation and judgment on the house of Israel, on the temple. That the temple is no longer doing what God had created it to do. And in confronting that, as they go home and they come back the next day, the disciples see that fig tree that he cursed the day before, and Peter brings up that it is withered to its roots, and they're shocked And we seem to be shocked at Jesus' response to that because his response to to their noticing that the, the fig tree has faded is have faith in God. And that seems to come out of left field. It seems to be completely disconnected with everything else that is going on, but that right there is the point of this entire passage of Scripture. That a fruitful faith is ultimately rooted in a fellowship with God. Fruitful faith is rooted in that relationship, that fellowship with the Lord. This is the link that ties these two together. The people of Israel have fallen out of fellowship with God. Their heart is no longer for his heart. And so they're going through all of this religiosity, this religious ritualism, thinking that they're okay with God, but instead they're living in unrepentant, unfruitful sin, and God has come to bring his judgment. And Jesus speaks judgment against the temple that is all show and no spark. It is all leaf and no fruit. It's fake. It's false. It's a mirage. It's nothing more. And so Jesus calls his disciples to something deeper, to something better, to a fellowship with God. As he now, the true king, the true Messiah, we know becomes the temple of God. The place where we fellowship with God. Because he is the incarnate God, come to save us. That's what this passage is about. What does this passage then mean for us? What is Jesus doing in this passage of Scripture, and how does it affect us? First off, I think that Jesus' actions in this passage of Scripture, as we see him bring judgment on the temple and on the religious practices of the people, Jesus' actions first and foremost challenge our idolatry. I don't want to belabor this point because last week we talked about when we worship the Jesus we want instead of the Jesus who is, we're guilty of idolatry. And that's exactly what Paul condemns in Romans chapter 1, that we oftentimes reject God as he has revealed himself to us, and instead we pursue gods of our own creation. When you say, my God would never fill in the blank, you're worshiping an idol. When we reject God and we reject Jesus Christ, there are many people who come to this passage of Scripture and when they read what Jesus speaks to the tree, they think, oh, poor innocent tree. What did the tree do? It's not the time for figs, right? Mark is very important or very pointed to point out it wasn't even the season for figs. So what was Jesus doing? Was he just throwing a temper tantrum because he didn't get what he wanted? Mark wants us to see that Jesus is not ignorant, but instead Jesus is doing something that is symbolic in its nature. He's doing something that actually happened. Yes, Jesus actually cursed the tree. It's not a a figurative, fake, make-believe event. But he is doing it as a prophetic act, as a parabolic act 
to, to explain what the disciples are about to see in Jerusalem. Jesus displays here the fact that he is the God of the universe, clothed in humanity, who acts righteously in all respects. Up to this point, we have seen him, seen him acting in a certain way. With the weak and the helpless, he's gentle. With the broken and discouraged, he's helpful. With the faithful and the repentant, he's merciful and gracious. But with the arrogant, with the wicked, with the proud, he is indignant and he is full of wrath. Because that is what sin deserves. And Jesus judges fruitlessness in his people. He explains this over in John, in John chapter 15. Verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He goes on to say it in even a little harsher way. In verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus has come in judgment. He is priest, and he is king, and he is redeemer. He is also God come in judgment. Judgment on sin and judgment on false religiosity. He's not going to sit idly by and watch what is meant to draw people to the Lord be perverted by our sinfulness. And so Jesus speaks judgment on the temple. Jesus speaks judgment on this tree. And it's a sign to you and to me that we should take heart. We should be warned. Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind. And Paul tells us his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And unrepentance will be dealt with by God. God is faithful, and he is just to continue to hold on to us and purge us. We have to accept Jesus for all of his aspects and come to see him as the Jesus who is patient and kind, but also who is firm and who is full of wrath and discipline for sin. But Jesus' actions also challenge our religiosity. I've used that word many times in the gospel of, uh, as we've preached through the gospel of Mark, and there's many that still struggle with it. I define religiosity as the practice of religion for religion's sake. It's that practice of checking off all of the, of the boxes and depending on and putting our trust in our religious rituals instead of the one that those religious practices are meant to point us to. It's worshiping the signs instead of letting the signs point us to Jesus Christ. Making much of the signs and ignoring the, what the signs are pointing us to. And what Jesus is doing in this passage of Scripture is confronting an unjust system that has been built up and is building an earthly kingdom on the backs of the poor and the suffering while providing wealth and power to a few who ignore their own evil and need for a relationship with God. As the priests and the high priests and the Sanhedrin were growing wealthy on the back of this market, as they were continuing to oppress the poor, Jesus confronts that system, the system that presents a, fa a false faithfulness and brings a false security to those who have actually been cut off from the vine and are in threat of being thrown into the fire. And that should shock us. And that should drive us to something deeper and something better. After all, Paul said in Romans chapter 11, if God is willing to do this to the natural branches, to the Jews, what will he do to the Gentiles who are unfruitful, who are unfaithful? This should cause us to search our hearts and our lives for the evidence of our life in Jesus Christ and for fruitfulness. 
We should be asking the questions, are we growing? We should ask that of ourselves as individuals. We should ask that of ourselves as a body of believers in Jesus Christ. What is the measure of our fruitfulness as individual Christians and our fruitfulness as a, as a church of Jesus Christ? In what ways do we perpetuate a religious system at the expense of genuine ministry? In what ways do we build up systems instead of devote ourselves to true ministry? There's a book on discipleship called The Trellis and the Vine. And the authors in that book use this illustration of a rose bush or a vine that, that grows fruit, or I mean grows flowers, or it could be fruit or anything else. And they talk about many churches are in the business of focusing on the trellis. The trellis is necessary. It's that, it's that piece of wood or that, that frame that is necessary to give the vine shape so that it can grow up and it can climb and it can grow out and it can ex access the sun and everything else. The trellis is necessary. The trellis is things like budgets and programs. It's those those that infrastructure that we need, staffing and buildings and all of those things. But the trellis is just a piece of wood or just a piece of metal. It's meant to support something else. And when we spend all of our time focusing on what is meant to be the support system, we miss the real life and the beauty of ministry in Jesus Christ. Real life and ministry are the roses that grow. And when we neglect to pour our life and our investment in the things that ultimately matter, the vine work of living with one another, of loving one another. They use an illustration of somebody who comes up and says, Pastor, I really want to get involved. Pastor, I really want to be about the work of the ministry in the church. Where can I go? What can I do? I'm not popular in the church. I'm not on a committee. I'm not in a, a Sunday school teacher. I'm not a this. I'm not a that. That's somebody who's focusing on trellis work fitting into the infrastructure. And the authors recommend pastors' response to that is to say, hey, look over here. Is Ashley and Joe. They just recently moved to town. They don't know anybody. How about you walk over and invite them to lunch? Take them out. Pay for their lunch. Get to know them. Build into their life. Fill a, you know, fill a, a void and a need in them. And, and when you're done with that, here, here's, here's Rachel. She's struggling in her life. Her husband's deployed. She's got two kids running all over the place. She needs some help. Why don't you guys over, go over and offer an opportunity that you would babysit the kids so that she can get some time away? Or you pour into her life and you invest. That's ministry. It's not about a position. It's about seeing people and meeting the needs of people. It's about growing in our depth and our understanding of what others need. It's about growing in our righteousness. What fruit are you bearing in Jesus' name? What fruit are we bearing in Jesus' name as a church? Both internally and then externally. How are we growing in our quality of our faith and our life in Jesus Christ? But how are we also growing in our quantity? Personally, internally, and qualitatively. Are you growing in righteousness? Do you see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? Notice I said fruit, not fruits. Paul puts it singular. The fruit of the Spirit are all of those things, not your pet few. 
Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Are you seeing yourself grow in those? Are you seeing evidence of all of those come out in your life? Are you growing in your sensitivity to your own sin? And in growing in sensitivity to your own sin, are you growing then in your dependence upon the gospel of Jesus Christ for your sanctification? Or is the gospel of Jesus Christ just something that you did back then when you were saved, when you were baptized, when you got dunked? When was the last time you genuinely fell on your face before the Lord and confessed sin and repented of it? Growing Christians are growing in a sensitivity to their sin and their need for Jesus Christ. Are you living in the light of the gospel, granting grace and forgiveness in the same manner that you had asked the Lord to provide for you? Are you giving to others what you are expecting to get from God? Or are you asking God for forgiveness and for grace and for mercy and holding it to yourself while you're holding a bitter grudge against somebody else? and holding unforgiveness in your life? Are you growing in your affection for the Lord, for his word, for his ways, for his reputation and his renown? Does it break your heart? Not that people disagree with you in your particular political or religious positions, or does it grieve your heart that people are sinning against a holy and a righteous God? Are you so in love with the Lord That when someone sins, you hurt for how he has been sinned against. That's the mark of a relationship with someone. I hurt when someone hurts that person. Are you growing in an affection for your church family? Do you love those who love the Lord, looking always to increase the bonds of your love? Or are you content with that little group that you've carved out that has survived all of the difficult things with you and, and walked through the storms with you? Are you closed off and this is my group and this is what we're going to be? Or are you open to constantly growing and expanding and multiplying? What about corporately? Are we growing in the way that we live out the commands of the gospel? Do we live out the one another commands of Scripture? Love one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, confess the sins to one another, outdo one another in showing honor to each other, and all of the many different one another commands in Scriptures that drive us to each other. Are we seeing in our church older men intentionally mentoring younger men? Are we seeing older women intentionally reaching out to connect with and mentor younger women as is commanded in Titus chapter 2? Or are we content to just live my life and they'll figure it out? They'll come to me. No. We go as Christ went and came to us. Are we growing in dependence upon one another, increasing in a spirit of trust and honesty regarding our struggles with sin and temptation? Are you open so that someone can come to you with their real deep sins? Are you willing to confess your sins that you might receive healing, that we might bear those burdens together? Are we seeing believers equipped to understand, interpret, and apply the Word of God? Are we growing internally? Are we growing in our quality? But also, are we growing externally, growing in our quantity? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with your repentance? Can you point to the ways that you are actively putting to death the sin in your life and choosing righteousness and pursuing God in the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit? Are you living a life of righteousness that gets the attention of those that are around you, whether positively or negatively? Are you receiving persecution on the one side and are you receiving the attention of somebody else that says there's something in your life that is making you different and I need to know about that because there's hope in that. 
Are you living a life that comes into confrontation and and conflict, healthy conflict, with sin in the world that bears out in persecution? Because Jesus said we would be persecuted. Are you living a life of righteousness? Are you growing in your desire to see others come to know the Lord as you know him? Do you have a hunger and a thirst that others would be saved? Are you actively seeking out men and women in your life, family, friends, neighbors, those that you come across that you might speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's Charles Spurgeon who says, I don't believe that you have tasted the the honey of of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you can eat it all by yourself. We're content to sit back. Corporately, as a church family, are we loving our community sacrificially, generously, serving where the Lord has placed us, seeking the good of our community, our fellow citizens, for, and also for ourselves as we're commanded to in Jeremiah 29.7? Are we generously supporting the missions locally and around the world? We have an opportunity to financially support missionaries around, the, the North, around North America in just a couple of weeks with the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, where we support financially those missionaries that are, that are sent through the Southern Baptist Convention in North America and South America, where we give to them, to their ministry needs. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who are comforted by the fact with, I write a check and that checks off my evangelism box. I'm supporting ministries. I'm supporting missionaries financially, and so that is good enough. We don't need to do it ourselves. But we're supposed to be bearing fruit, intentionally reaching out to our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be those that are living out what Jesus Christ commanded. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Are we about the work of God's kingdom? Or are we about building our own? In the here and the now. Are we letting our budgets drive our obedience? Or are we letting our obedience drive our budgets? Jesus confronts our religiosity, our trust in some, a system instead of a person. And finally, Jesus' actions encourage our faithfulness or our fidelity, our loyalty, our trustworthiness. Every man-made and man-centered system is flawed, and so it's going to be prone to corruption and to injustice. And when we come to trust, again, in that, sim- that system or that sign that is meant to point beyond itself to something else, we fall far, far short of the glory of God. When we protect a system and define success as the perpetual maintenance of that program or that system of doing things, then we're guilty of idolatry. It's not about the Sunday morning two-hour experience and perpetuating that as long as we possibly can. Life with Jesus Christ, fellowship with Jesus Christ is about so much more than your Sunday morning church attendance. And yet we still hear believers all the time who soothe their conscience and assuage the concerns of others by relying upon just that, their church attendance, their church membership, their past church attendance, experience, anything else. But Jesus' judgment on the tree and on the temple for their unfruitfulness challenges that in us, and instead it calls for something different. And that's what Jesus does at the end of our passage of Scripture when he says, have faith in God. Fellowship with God. 
As we've said, as I said earlier, we know that Jesus has now replaced the temple as the location of God's presence with humanity. We know that he is building himself a better, more eternal temple, not made with human hands, but instead raised up by the Holy Spirit. We know that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit here on earth, such that he lives within us, fellowships with us. We know that he is, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is gathering together all of those living stones, building for himself an eternal, greater city and temple, gathered together by God. And he invites us to personally and corporately fellowship with him. Have faith in God. Not in the system that Jesus Christ has just condemned. Jesus is telling them the temple is not the place anymore. There is a better place, and that place is actually with God. Eventually, we are going to see at the death of Jesus Christ that that God rips the veil that separates man from him and invites them into a relationship with him. And Jesus, we see the first fruits of that here is Jesus invites his disciples into a relationship with God by putting their faith in him. And a faith in God brings forth, it inspires courage. As Jesus says, don't doubt. But instead, if you believe, you have the ability to do the impossible. Faith moves mountains. You've heard that before. As Jesus says, if you believe, you can speak to this mountain, it will be cast into the sea. We are supposed to be living out faithful obedience to the Lord where we attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, and live again out of that place of belief and faith. But unfortunately, what we oftentimes do is we lean on what we can accomplish. It was said to me one time when I came into pastoral ministry, especially in a revitalization kind of context, It says, if you aren't doing anything that makes you terrified, that needs God, that leaves you in a state of kind of anxiety, then you're not exercising faith. If you can do it in your own strength, if you are completely comfortable, there's no problem, we got this, we've got the money for it, we've got the building for it, we've got everything else, we're not attempting things in faith. We're working out of faith in ourselves. And it depends upon what we have our abilities, and our things. And again, we're allowing our budgets to define our obedience instead of our obedience to define our ministry and our budgets. And that faith in God as it attempts great things for God, as it believes great things from God, it manifests itself in a desire to be with God that is most intimately seen in prayer. Prayer, we did a whole series on prayer last year, but prayer is essentially this. It's communion with God. It's fellowshipping with God. It is being so united with God that we we know God's heart. We know God's life. That's what is wrong with the temple and with the Israelites. They've fallen out of fellowship with God. And they're not pursuing his heart and what he wants. But when we seek God and we pray and we ask big things from God and we trust in God and we are fellowshipping with him, God works on our hearts so that we not only have faith in him in big ways, but we pray. Now this is not a blank check to just expect whatever you want from God. The more time that you spend in fellowship with God, God changes your heart and God changes your prayers to reflect his will and his heart. And when we pray in alignment with what God wants, God loves to say yes. One commentator illustrated it this way. Prayer is like the fisherman trying to dock his boat. And he casts his his tow line out 
and he, he gets it on the, on, the, on the dock or he gets it to his friend who's standing there on the dock and he starts pulling on that rope. That's like prayer. His goal is not to pull the shore to him. His goal is to pull himself to the shore. And so often in prayer, we are there trying to pull God and try to form God into our likeness and to match our wants and our desires instead of humbly submitting ourselves to pull ourselves to God in an alignment to him. And as we pray those prayers of faith, we can believe that God loves to answer the prayers in keeping with his will. And when we stand praying, though, that fellowship with God inevitably changes our relationship with others. The more we know God and know God's heart and we know what God has done for us and we grow in an understanding of his love and his mercy and his grace, that is inevitably going to overflow out of our lives and out of our hearts into our relationship with others. If you are truly living in fellowship with God, you are living in light of his grace and his mercy for you, and that grace and that mercy will overflow in compassion and sympathy to other people. The most heartbreaking thing for me to see is an unsympathetic Christian who has the ability to sit back and wave their fingers say, shame on you, shame on you. When we understand what Paul says, I am the worst of all sinners. There is no one in need of grace more than me. We give that grace away. Where you point your finger is where you think change needs to take place. And as Christians truly humbled and living in fellowship with the Lord, we will see that where that finger belongs is pointing at us. Fellowship with the Lord fuels our faithfulness, and it results in fruitfulness. That's what Jesus is challenging, the unfruitfulness, the faithlessness of the people. He is calling us to faithfulness, to fellowship, and to fruitfulness in this passage of Scripture. So my question to you today is how are you going to respond? Are you simply going through the motions of your Christianity? If you sat down right now and submitted to hard questions, what would you find? What would you find in your life? If we sat down with your budget, with your, with your schedule, and we started looking at where you spend your time and where you spend your money and where you spend your energy, what would it reveal about your life? What would it reveal about what you worship, what you want? What flavors your conversations? Are you inviting people to church or are you inviting people to the Jesus who is the groom of the church? Where is your affection? Where is your life? How do you need to commit today to a deeper fellowship with the Lord and a greater maturity in growing up in Christ and growing out in the world as you live with him? I invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes and go before the Lord and seek his face right now and ask him how it is that you need to respond. Where is it that you need to grow? Do you need to grow internally in your quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you need to grow externally in the way that you interact with the world and call others to faith in Christ? Do you need to commit right here, right now to the way that you have been putting on a show where you bear all the signs of growth and none of the fruit. Jesus is calling you and I today to faithfulness and to fruitfulness. Spend a moment in prayer before the Lord and I'll close this in a second.